Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 5, verse 10. The fifteenth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 25, 2015, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 6. Translation, Installment 3, accompanies this talk. We're in the book of Hebrews. Last week we looked at Part 7, paragraph 16, or chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 in your standard Bible. And there we were looking at a very commonly known passage about the Word of God. It's like a two-edged sword that can cut to the division of bone and marrow, or soul and spirit. And what I was arguing is that if we look at that in the context of the argument, What he's talking about is the gospel message itself and how the gospel message will find us out. We are good at covering up the actual core commitments of our inner being. We can fake it. We can imitate. We can put out there as part of our persona people who want to know God and want to obey God and want to serve God and are committed to God and are committed to Jesus, we can easily put that out as part of our persona without it actually being authentic, without it actually being something that is arising out of the inner core of who I am. And when that happens, we can go a long way toward faking other people out, but one of the things that exposes the fact that that's what we're doing, and we have to remember the context here. It's not our context. It's the context that Paul is writing in. In the context in which he was writing, being a good Jew, a pious, religious, law-keeping, God-loving Jew, proclaimed the gospel message to such a person, and if they refuse to believe it, if they reject it, if they stubbornly stiff-arm the truth of the gospel message, it's in effect splitting them wide open and exposing the inner core of who they are for being godless as they actually are. Never mind that their persona was one of godliness. They're not godly. Their orientation is not toward God. Their orientation is away from God. And how do we know that? Because when God proclaimed his good news to them, confronted them with his good news, they rejected it refused to embrace it and refused to believe it. That's what that paragraph was all about. And I will just remind you that I don't think he would have said what he said quite as starkly as he did in Hebrews to us today because we live in a different time and place in history. The gospel is not nearly as accurate a measure of what's going on in our insides as it was in his day because in our day, There must be 50 reasons to believe in Jesus, and only one of them impresses God very much. But in his day, you didn't have 50 reasons to believe in Jesus. You had 150 reasons not to believe in Jesus. But if you believed in him anyway, 
it was only because something was happening in your insides that indicated God was drawing you to himself. As God drew you, you were open and receptive. You had ears to hear and eyes to see, and you responded positively to the truth of his message. So in his context, it was a pretty fair measure of what was going on in the insides. Today, not so much, because history has changed our circumstances significantly from his circumstances. Okay, now finally, we come to the last paragraph in what I think is sort of the introductory section of the book of Hebrews. After this paragraph, he launches into the primary argument of the entire book. He's still in the introduction, and now we have the final paragraph. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold tight our confession. Now, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. Okay, so this is the conclusion of the introduction. Therefore, in view of everything that he's been saying and everything that he's been arguing from 1-1 till now, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold tight our confession. Now, the main exhortation here, this let us hold tight our confession, what does he mean by confession? He means confession in the way that we talk about confessions of faith, that is, the sort of content to the beliefs. What is it that we say is true? What is it that we confess to be true? Well, what it is that we're confessing to be true is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one sent from God to fulfill all the promises that God has made to Israel in the past. We're confessing that Jesus is that one. And remember the background here now. Why is this so germane, this exhortation? Because the whole reason he's writing the book of Hebrews is because Jews from a Jewish background, ethnically Jewish people, who have believed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, are beginning to rethink that. They're beginning to decide, it's costing me too much to confess that, so maybe I won't be confessing that any longer. And they're they're starting to rethink that. And all of the unresolved doubts and questions and inconsistencies and tensions in their theology is coming to the forefront, and they're beginning to think this doesn't make any sense. So Paul's writing this letter to encourage them not to give up, not to abandon it, fix your inconsistencies and the incoherence in your worldview, don't abandon Jesus. Understand him better. Don't split. Don't leave. So that's the purpose of Hebrews. So here, right at the end of the introduction, that's what he hammers home. Hold tight. Let us hold tight our confession. Hang on to our belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, notice he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, What's interesting is only once so far in the introduction has he even mentioned the fact that Jesus is a high priest. This is, I I think it's the second time, maybe it's the third, I think it's the second time in the introduction, and he's never developed it. He's never told us what does it mean that he's the high priest or what is a high priest or anything of the sort. There's a reason for that because the whole rest of the book is about that. 
starting with the very next paragraph then, he's going to launch into a long, lengthy, detailed, finely argued exposition of what it means that Jesus is a high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. That's what he was going to spend a great deal of time on. So in the introduction, he just sort of anticipates that a couple of times by mentioning that Jesus is our high priest, but he doesn't really explain himself. And since he doesn't, I won't, because when we get into the rest of the book, it's going to become abundantly clear what he means by that. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold tight our confession. Now, what does he mean, he who has passed through the heavens? What strikes me, I think this is true, is that the ascension was a big deal to the apostles. In my experience, the ascension was not really such a big deal to me, and I, it's probably, you would say the same thing about your perspective. I don't think as a culture we've made that big of a deal out of the ascension. For the apostles, it was a big deal. It was one more, right alongside the resurrection, it was a dramatic, a really, really dramatic sign that Jesus had been accepted into his place, into his role, into his standing as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the authority over all of God's creation, as the apostles put it, he has been raised up and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And being seated at the right hand is basically to be next in charge over all of God's creation. God inherently, in and of himself, has authority over all of creation, but he has invested that very authority that belongs to him in this human being, Jesus, so that Jesus is the very embodiment of God's authority and reign and sovereign rule over all of creation. Well, how do the apostles know that? They stood there on the Mount of Olives and they saw him get lighter than air and pop like a hydrogen balloon out of existence. He went up high into the atmosphere, passed through the heavens, I think that's what he means, passed through the skies, passed through the atmosphere, out of sight, and disappeared. Where was he going? Ah, we know where he was going. In a picture form, that's sort of a acted-out parable, his ascension, in this sort of acted-out parable, he was going to, into the divine realm to be seated by God in his place of authority at the right hand of God. And that's what that meant to them it seems. So I think what he's saying is, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, we saw with our own eyes the evidence, the sign of his authority, Jesus, the Son of God, since that's what the ascension proved, as well as other things, proved that he was, let us hold tight our confession of him as the Son of God. Okay? Now, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. The way Paul words it here, and I don't think it's just a matter of translation, I think it's just the way the paragraph is structured, It's very, very tempting to think that what Paul is saying is, well, let me put it this way, that sentence two and sentence three are connected with sentence four. 
two being we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. Because those things are true, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's very tempting to take it that way. The problem is, when you take it that way, it creates this real tension. Is that true? Is it the fact that he can sympathize with my weakness? That's the basis for my confidence to go to the throne of grace, expecting to receive mercy and find grace resulting in suitable help. That really actually doesn't make any sense, does it? Jesus can sympathize with me all day long, but it's not pity that is the basis for my salvation. It's not that he just pities me enough that he's willing to give me mercy. It's nothing about me that elicits the response on God's part and on Jesus' part that, oh, I'm going to give him mercy. He is just so cute, it's irresistible. I'm not going to destroy him. It's not me that elicits mercy out of God. The mercy of God proceeds out of the profound depths of who God is. God is merciful to us because God is merciful, not because he's merciful to us in particular. So the pole of that relationship is the mercy of God extends to me even though I don't deserve it. It's not that my weakness was exculpatory. Oh, it was just so hard for Jack. He was under so much pressure. He's just so morally flawed. How can I blame him because he was so morally flawed? Well, all I have to do is say that, and you realize how incoherent that is. Of course you blame somebody who's morally flawed. That's the only reason you blame somebody, is because they're morally flawed. My moral flaws, my moral weaknesses, my depravity, my evil is not a reason to show me mercy. It's what mercy is acting in the face of. It's in spite of my unworthiness and my depravity that God responds in mercy. So it it makes no sense for them to be connected in the way that I feel compelled to connect them. So I think no matter how compelling it might be to connect them that way, that's not what Paul meant. I don't see how that can be what Paul meant. I think, rather, verses 2 and 3 are following 1. They are in response to, let us hold tight our confession, in spite of the fact, even though Jesus was an ordinary human being. That's been the topic from the beginning of the letter. He's not an angelos. He's not a superman. He's not a theophany. He's an ordinary human being. Nonetheless, he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So let us hold fast our confession, even though it can be said about this man, Jesus, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. It's a partial answer to the objection, but he's just a human being. And to that, the partial answer that Paul is giving is, well, but that's not a mark against him. That's a mark in his favor, because as the Son of God, as the Messiah, he was also going to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. His humanity suits him for the role that God was going to give him. Like any good priest, a priest is taken from among mankind to represent mankind to God, to be a mediator between other human beings and God. 
So Jesus, like all the other high priests, was one of us, was taken from among us in order that he might represent us to God. And since he was taken from among us, he is very acquainted with the human trek, the human journey. He had his own journey, his own path through human existence. And he suffered all the realities of human existence. Grief, sorrow, pain, disappointment, futility, boredom. Everything that marks our existence as human, as distinctively human, he experienced it. He passed through it. He went through it. He knows exactly what our experience is. And it's from his standpoint, as someone sympathetic with human experience and human existence, that God has him in a place to play the role as our high priest, one who will represent us and intercede for us and mediate for us. So I think what he's doing in the second and third verse is lurking in the background is this objection. Why would I hold fast to my confession that Jesus is the Son of God when he was a peasant from Galilee? He's not Messiah material. I don't think he's the Messiah. No, hold fast that confession because when you confess him to be the Son of God, you're confessing him to be a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, the weaknesses I think he's talking about here are not our moral weaknesses. I think what he's talking about here is our human frailty, our finiteness, the limitations that are inherent in human existence itself but he's able to sympathize with those. So he felt all the same pressures. He felt the pressure of biological and physical need. He felt the pressure of psycho-emotional need. Everything that we've experienced, he experienced. He's no stranger to it. It's not alien to him. He was intimately acquainted with it. And I think that's what he means when he says, he has been tried without sin, mind you, Paul says, he has been tried without sin in every way that accords with our likeness. Now, he's not saying that any way any human being anywhere in human history has been tried, Jesus was tried. I've heard Christians say that kind of thing, that anything anybody out there has gone through, Jesus has gone through the same thing. No, no, he didn't. I mean, we know that he didn't. He lived a very particular life with a very particular set of problems, but He was fully human, and being fully human, every element, every aspect of his humanity was the source of seduction, compelling desire, frustration, as we experience it. He was no different than we are, I think is what Paul is saying. In other words, it's a way of saying he was an ordinary human being, and as an ordinary human being, he was well-suited to the role that God was going to give the Son of God to be a priest, a high priest, in accord with the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Therefore, and I think this is a conclusion not to those last two sentences, but a conclusion to the whole introduction. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. The throne that I think he's talking about, it could be the throne of Jesus, but I'm inclined to think that it's the throne of God that he has in mind. Therefore, because we have an intercessor and a mediator, because we have such a mediator, let us go before God and his throne seeking mercy, seeking the gift of eternal life, 
and do so with confidence, knowing that the intercessor who's now available for me and who's going to go to work on my behalf is going to guarantee the result that I get grace and mercy. So I go with confidence to the end that we might receive mercy and might find grace resulting in suitable help. Now, I think it's really clear what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the ultimate destiny of my life. At the judgment, I'm going to go before God seeking mercy and grace because I have nothing else to go for, nothing else in my favor except the mercy of God. I'm going to go confidently before the judgment seat and I can expect mercy, I can expect grace because I've got Jesus going to bat for me. And so I can go there with confidence. What Paul is not talking about here is, in the way this is often taught, probably most frequently taught this way, that you and I today, if we confront some difficulties in our life, sickness, failure, economic collapse of some kind, death in the family, any number of the troubles and problems of life, or I'm faced with some difficulty that I need a solution to, I need a remedy to something in my life. Take it to Jesus. And if you take it to Jesus, he's going to give you the grace, the gift of giving you the solution to your problem or the remedy to your situation. That's not at all what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is the one narrow, single, ultimate issue of are you going to get life at the end? Are you going to have an existence in the coming kingdom of God? Or are you going to be destroyed and condemned to death? The only two outcomes of our existence now, and we need grace and mercy in order to get the outcome of life in the age to come. Which are we going to get? Well, only if we hold tight our confession of Jesus will we have the mercy and grace that gives us life in the eternal kingdom of God. That's what he's saying in this paragraph. It's not about the everyday ongoing, continuing frustrations and struggles and griefs and sorrows and pains of life and how Jesus is the answer to those questions. We desperately want that to be true. And I know there are probably the vast majority of Christians would basically respond to me by saying, well, if Jesus can't give me those things, then what good is he? That's the only reason I'm a Christian is because I believe that Jesus is the one who goes through the thick and thin of life with me and is there to help me in my time of need. How many hymns do we sing that say that? How many choruses do we sing that say that? How many praise songs do we sing that say that? Look how often we emphasize that, because that's what we really want, because we don't really understand that that's not my real problem. My real problem is not having answers to the problems of life. My real problem is, am I going to be destroyed? Or am I going to be able to enter into the eternal kingdom of God one day where I'm not plagued by those problems any longer? Am I going to have an existence in the kingdom of God where there no longer is injustice, there no longer is evil, there no longer is being victimized by the evil of one another, there no longer is the futility that we experience now? Yes, we long for that, but that's not for now. And we will never experience that now. That's a hope before me in the eternal kingdom of God. Am I even going to get there? It all depends on what we do with the gospel, what we do with the good news that Jesus is the one God sent to be his Messiah, the Son of God, and function as our high priest, intercede for us, 
and secure mercy for us at the judgment seat. Okay? Let me pause there. I don't know the exact reference, so I'm not sure, but do you think this could be like the image of the high priest going through the holy, the veil into the holy holies, into God's presence, and his sacrifice being accepted? So then the people had knew that they would receive God's grace. He's writing to the Jews, and I wondered if that was just like he's referring to that image. So do you mean when he says he passed through the heavens? Right, and that he's the high priest, and he provided access. Well, when we get to chapter 9, it's going to be all about that. And at least at this point, I still have some work to do, but at this point, that's not how I read chapter 9. So I don't think so. It's pretty common for believers to look at the book of Hebrews and say, because Jesus died and the veil is rent, I now can march into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But I don't think that's what Paul is actually arguing. I think what Paul is arguing is Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. Right, that's what I mean. He went through the veil. He went into God's presence. His sacrifice was accepted. Yeah, that's true. I don't think that's what this phrase is saying. I think this is talking about the ascension. But yeah, he is going to say, just like the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies and present his offering to atone for sins, that's what Jesus did when he died, in effect. Yeah, he is going to say that. Jack, question I have is what we mean exactly when we go with confidence before the throne of God. It seems to me that I can go with confidence knowing that if I'm going to go make the next step, it's only because that Jesus is going to grant me mercy. That's the confidence that I can have. It seems like that a lot of times when we read something like this, we think, well, I'm going to go with confidence because I'm going to be good enough for God to grant me mercy. It doesn't sound like it's a big difference, I think. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know exactly... What Paul means is the former, the first thing you said, and clearly not the latter. Right. Right. Now, the way that we subtly take the second position instead of the first position, we subtly do that when we have a view of the atonement that Jesus accomplished some transaction on the cross that actually changed who I am in the eyes of God. I think this comes from Luther, correct me if I'm wrong, but a classic Lutheran doctrine was that the way it translates down in the Sunday school is, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Does that ring a bell at all? That in the eyes of God, God doesn't know that I'm not worthy of eternal life because Jesus has sort of accomplished this ontological, metaphysical transformation of my relationship with God so that he's looking at me through Jesus' glasses, and as he looks at me through Jesus' glasses, he sees me as worthy. Well, notice very subtly, I'm worthy. It's as if I'm worthy. I might as well be worthy. And that's very subtly shifting from the first, where my confidence is in how worthy Jesus is, to the latter, how worthy I am in the eyes of God. And I don't think that's true. I don't think any apostle would ever, would ever maintain that that's the case. When we get to the end of the next section, I'm going to point out, just anticipating this, it's very interesting what he says at the end of the next three paragraphs or four paragraphs. Well, let's read it. This is paragraph 20, so it's five, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and having been rendered completely qualified to all who obey him, He became the one responsible for their salvation in the age to come. 
since he had been designated by God as high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is subtle, but I think this is significant. Notice what he doesn't say. He became the one responsible for their salvation in the age to come since he had paid fully the debt that each of us owed to divine justice. He doesn't place the emphasis on his death. He places the emphasis on his priesthood. It's because he's a priest that I'm going to get salvation, not because he died. Now, what the letter is going to go on to do is to connect those two. Why did he have to die? Because he's a priest. Priests have to have offerings. Priests have to offer up offerings on the Day of Atonement. So Jesus had an offering that God had prescribed for him as this newfangled, different sort of priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. The prescribed offering that he had to offer was his own self, was his own body. So the reason for his death was to perform his role and his function as our priest. But in the final analysis, he became the source of our salvation because he was that priest playing that role as the priest, not because he died, which is exactly the opposite of how our more typical traditional theory of the atonement puts it. We place all the emphasis on his death. And we're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews, every time he gets a chance to say anything on the subject at all, he's always underlining and emphasizing how qualified he was to be our priest and therefore intercessor, our priest and intercessor. By the way, related to the last point I made about that Paul is not arguing that on an ongoing basis now we can come to Jesus and get answers to our problems. We were having breakfast with Rabbi Kinbar this morning, and he was making the point to us that one of the problems Jews have with the gospel message in Christianity is because Christians often, without really thinking about it, we present Jesus as, this is using his language now, we present Jesus as an intermediary between us and God. And because we present him as an intermediary between us and God, the typical Jew says, I don't need an intermediary. I can pray to God. Bingo. <laughs> That's exactly right. Paul is never saying that he's our intermediary in that sense. He's our mediator, which is different. What I need is for someone to step forward at the judgment seat and say, I want him. Father, grant him mercy. I want him in my kingdom. I can't do that for myself. I have no standing with God to be able to mediate on my own behalf or to intercede on my own behalf, to step forward and say, would you make an exception to justice in the case of Jack? Let's not do justice with him. Let's show him mercy. Jesus can do that. I can't do that. So we desperately need a mediator. We are completely sunk if God does not mediate for us. But do I need an intermediary? No. God is the one in whom I live and move and have my being. God knows the next thought in my head. I would argue he authors the next thought in my head. But he's near to every fiber of my being. He's not distant. He's as near as near can be to me. There's no room for an intermediary between me and God. Nobody can stand there and block the access that I have to God because he's as near as can be. And even though I think I'm guilty as charged, I don't know that I've ever really made a distinction between an intermediary and a mediator. I've never even thought in those terms, but it's a very important distinction 
because, and even though I've probably thought in terms of Jesus being an intermediary, it's never occurred to me that I have to pray to Jesus and not to God. I mean, even if my theology should have told me that you should pray to Jesus and not to God, I've always prayed to God. Jesus taught us to pray to God, our Father who art in heaven, you know, whoever art is. Our Father, we're praying, we're addressing God. We're not addressing our prayers to Jesus. Why? We're the creature, and he's the creator. And that creature-creator connection is as close and as intimate as could possibly be. So if I have anything to take up with the one who is able to do all things, I just ask him. I talk to him. I appeal to him. Will he hear me? Of course. He knows my next thought. Will he give heed to what I'm saying? That's another question. But it's not like he can't hear me. It's not like I don't have access to God. What I don't have access to is the kingdom of God, is a destiny of life in the kingdom of God, unless I'm granted access by the mercy of God. And for that, I need a mediator. It looks like for the argument at the end of chapter 4, it's necessary that Jesus be human in order to be an effective mediator or intercessor. And I was wondering if that necessity is just the necessity of narrative or if there's another reason why that's necessary that I'm not seeing. Well, I'm not even sure that I would go so far as to say that his argument is that it's necessary. I don't know if he's saying it's necessary. Because it seems like that's at least a piece of the puzzle. Like somehow Jesus would not be as effective as an intercessor without his humanity. Or are you seeing something different there? I think Paul's coming at it from the other direction. I don't think he's saying God couldn't have done it without the Messiah being a human being. But I think what he's saying is the fact that he's a human being should be absolutely no obstacle to you believing that he's playing this role. It's a subtle difference, but do do you see the difference? So it's not that his humanity makes him somehow more effective, it's that his humanity is no obstacle to him being effective? Yes, exactly. It's more like that. Now, would Paul go so far as to say it made him more effective? I don't know. It's hard to see why that would follow, why that would have to be the case. When you start thinking of all possible worlds, could God have created a possible world where the Messiah didn't need to be a human being? I think so. I don't think there was any kind of real necessity for him to be a human being, but it's very appropriate, it's very fitting that he be a human being if he's going to play the role that God has given him to play. So it's the difference between something being fitting and appropriate and something being necessary. I don't think it's necessity that he's arguing for. I think it's propriety, fittingness that he's talking about. He's saying that since it's fitting... Don't hold it against him. Don't reject him as the Messiah because he's a human being, because it's fitting that he be a human being. That's not a reason to think that he can't be who we're claiming that he is. Jack, I'm betting with regard to the Ascension, I'm betting that to his Jewish audience that part of why that would resonate was, you know, that... So I'm having trouble hearing you. The bit in 414 about the Ascension, uh-huh. I'm betting that that would evoke Elijah. Huh. For his Jewish audience, you know, because they have one other example of yeah. a human being who has gone up into the heavens. I mean, that was certainly used as a sign of God's yeah. approval of that human being. I, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's true. 
So I don't have any problem with what you said about we don't need an intermediary and we can pray straight to God and don't have to pray through Jesus. But I'm thinking of some other people I know who are Christians and would go to where if you pray this in Jesus' name, Jesus said, if you pray this in my name, the Father will give it to you. So how does the in my name, and this may be going too far off of what you're talking about and you can say that's okay. If you don't want to talk about it. But I was just curious about that, how the in Jesus' name part fit in. Well, if I've ever understood what in Jesus' name meant, I don't remember. Ron might remember what he thinks, and I would trust what he has to say about that. Well, I'm not sure, but I mean, you'd have to remind me of what passages you're talking about. The ones that come to my mind are from the Upper Room Discourse, where I really see him as talking to the disciples and the asking in his name is telling them that they can have confidence that they can carry out this mission they have been given and the way they do the miracles and healing people and all of that stuff that they can call on God to do these things with the confidence because they are his representative it is they are asking in his name like an ambassador would speak in someone's name or something like that so that's the thing that comes to mind to me there i'm not sure if there's a passage that i would interpret as I'm asking in Jesus' name for myself or something like well, that. Well, probably the passage would be, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. I don't even remember where that is. <laughs> Isn't that in the Broom Discourse, though? Oh, that's, that's true. But it, so anyway, I, don't, I couldn't say any more than that. I don't yeah. remember. Yeah, whatever. I mean, we'd, we'd ha- right, I'm not even sure it actually means the same thing every time it's used. But whatever it is, what we've formed in Christian culture is this kind of Neoplatonic cosmos where... God is way up there and is pure and is pure light, and we are filled with darkness. He is matter, and we are antimatter. And God won't even let us in his proximity because the explosion would just be, would be too great. And so that's why we need an intermediary, is we need Jesus to kind of be that buffer where he can relay, he can come into the presence of God, he can make requests, so he can buffer my evil from the purity of God and make that all possible. And I think we read all that stuff, that whole picture, into something like in Jesus' name. But I'm not sure we've, any of us have thought about that much when we do that. You know? But I'm sorry, you caught me off guard. I, I don't remember what conclusions I might have. It's not a question. It's just thinking through on the fly like you are about what Kay was asking. It seems as though... I haven't studied the passages that are talked about. Haven't looked Who told at... you I was thinking through on the fly? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it seems to me as though even just thinking about those words, if I were to go to Kay and I'd say, ask Jack something in my name, it's not that Kay is then asking me for something from you. It's that Kay's going to you and is basically saying, Peter said this would be a good idea. Or Peter said you should do this. Peter said this is going to work out. That just seems to be the, the straightforward sense, even of the words, ask something in my name. You're not asking me, you're asking someone else, and I'm commending you to do that and giving you a good reason to do that, seems. Mm-hmm. Does the term for his sake sometimes cover the text of in his name? Because you ask God to do something for Jesus' sake. Yeah, we probably do have to make a distinction between the phrase to ask something in his name versus the other places where in his name is used. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they all mean 
Yeah. The same. Would you agree with that? They're not. They're not always meaning exactly the same thing. And yeah, I think that's one possibility in some contexts. And when we talk about Jesus' relationship to the Father, it seems like there's a lot of facets to that. You got to kind of handle them one at a time, maybe, and know what we're talking about when we do it. Because I feel like, as a human being, when God says, "Why should I save humanity?" and Jesus can stand up and say, "Well, I'm human." And a human can be perfect. A human can obey you. And by the way, I would like you to save these others that I love that you've given me. And that's a weird sort of way to look at the relationship, but maybe that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And so as a high priest, now he has that. He's standing in another place, in another relationship, with another job to do, so to speak. So I, maybe it's not quite as simple as we've been led to believe. Yeah, this is consistent with what you're saying. I think one of the things that... I'm not sure that it's the point that he's making, but it certainly follows from what he's saying, is if Jesus is a human being just like us, he now becomes relatable to us. He's going to be my king, but he's not going to be some abstract alien that I can't relate to. I can have a relationship with him. I can understand him. I know him, and he knows me. There's not such a disconnect between his experience and my experience that we can't know each other. He's my superior He has authority over me, but we are ontological equals, ontological peers. We can be friends. I can be a friend of Jesus. Something just occurred to me. This is off the cuff, so I might retract it later, but I was thinking about the upper room discourse where some of that language about asking in my name, it just occurred to me that there's one spot And I do think he's talking to the disciples about their experience as his representatives. But there's one spot where I think he says something like, I don't say that I will ask on your behalf because the Father himself loves you or something like that. That's right. Where So he seems to be suggesting that this in his name stuff is not that I need to be in the middle of it somehow to make it work. Yeah, right. Okay, let's move on then. So now we leave the introduction. And we actually get into the argument. We don't have time to get real far, but we begin to get into the actual argument of the primary argument of the book. Now, every high priest taken from among men is appointed to do things in the presence of God on behalf of men so as to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. He is able to have compassion toward the ignorant and misguided since he is himself also beset with weakness. Now, on account of this, He is obligated to make offering for sins as he does for the people, so likewise he does for himself. Now indeed, no one takes this honor upon himself. Rather, he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Okay, so right from the get-go, now remember, this is going to be a finely argued case that he makes for Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's going to go slow, so don't get impatient. What happens is we get impatient and we start saying, well, what's that have to do with Jesus when he's not talking about Jesus? And that's immediately a problem in the first paragraph, is that we look at, we think he's got to be talking about Jesus, and he says he's able to have compassion toward the ignorant and misguided since he is himself also beset with weakness. We are talking about moral weakness here now. Now, on account of this, he's obligated to make offerings for sins, as he does for the people, so likewise he does for himself. I thought Jesus was sinless. He is. This isn't talking about Jesus. This is the priest in the Mosaic legal system, system of offerings under the Mosaic covenant. 
That's what he's talking about. So basically all he's doing in this paragraph is helping define the role of the high priest. Now, in this first sentence, every high priest, he says several different things. Taken from among men, appointed to do things in the presence of God, on behalf of men, so as to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. The question we have to ask is, which of those ideas is central to the point that he's making? Is that he's taken from among men? Could be. Is that he's appointed to do things in the presence of God? Could be. Is that he does his work in the very presence of God? Could be. Is it because he does his work on behalf of men? Could be. But I don't think so. I think the central idea that he wants to emphasize is the high priest offers both gifts and offerings for sins. That when all is said and done, there's just this very definitive fact, and that is the role of the high priest is to offer offerings for sins for himself and for the rest of the people of Israel. If he weren't offering, if he weren't offering offerings for sins, he wouldn't be the high priest. He wouldn't be doing his job as the high priest. He would be remiss because what's absolutely crucial, essential, and central to his role is the offering of offerings for sins. Okay. So notice then the next sentence follows. Now on account of this, he is obligated to make offering for sins as he does for the people, so likewise he does for himself. He's obligated to offer offerings for sins. Now, how's that going to play a role in his argument? He's not going to tell us yet. But by the time we get there, the role that's going to play in his argument is, why did Jesus have to die? Because again, lurking in the background of everything of Paul's whole argument is this objection. But he got killed by the Romans. He got crucified by the Romans. Messiahs don't die. So I don't think Jesus was really the Messiah. And he's going to answer that charge by explaining to us the absolute appropriateness of Jesus going to his death. And ultimately, what is that argument going to be? He was the high priest. He had to have the appropriate offering as the high priest. So that's why he had to die. In order to meet the purposes of God, to fulfill the purposes of God, to have the narrative go the way God had scripted the story of all history, in order for that story to get told, he had to play a particular role that was foreshadowed by the Mosaic system of offerings under the law. And every priest has to have an offering to offer. So Jesus had to have an offering to offer. That's why he died. That's where he's going. But he's going to go there slowly. So all he's doing here is establishing the fact that a high priest is under obligation to offer offerings for sins. And then the other point is, and indeed, no one takes this honor upon himself. Rather, he is called by God, even as Aaron was. There are a lot of Levites. There are a lot of people in the tribe of Levi. It was Aaron who was picked to be the high priest. God appointed him as high priest. It was God's choice that he be high priest. And the point that Paul is making is, you never have a priest in Israel who is there by self-appointment. If God doesn't say you're a priest, then you're not a priest. It has to be chosen and designated by God himself. And what he's going to go on to argue is, both of those things are true of Jesus. Jesus didn't appoint himself. He was appointed by God. Okay, That's the next paragraph. Likewise, also, the Messiah did not glorify himself so as to become the high priest. Rather, the one who said to him, you are my son, 
today I have begotten you, likewise also in another place says, you are a priest to the end of the ages in accord with the order of Melchizedek. So the same God who declared to him, you are my son, that is, you are the Messiah, the same one who appointed him to be the Messiah, also in another psalm, appointed him to be the high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. God appointed him. Okay? So who is the one to whom God said, you are my son, today I have begotten to you, and the one to whom he said, you are a priest to the end of the ages in accord with the order of Melchizedek? He said, this is the one who in the days of his physical existence with loud crying and tears, offered up entreaties and supplications to the one able to save him from death, and who was heard due to the seriousness of his relation to God. What he's talking about here, I think, is the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is the one who, in the days of his physical existence, and by the physical existence, his existence here on earth with us, in the same kind of bodied existence that we have, When he shared bodily existence with us, there was a time when with loud crying and tears, he offered up entreaties and supplications to the one able to save him from death. It has to be the garden where Jesus was weeping and sweating blood and stressed out of his ever-loving mind as he faced into the potential torture that God was asking him to submit to. And he was not much likened it. He didn't want to do that. And he was praying that God would, if possible, let this cup pass from me. That's his supplication. That's his entreaty. Can I, like, can we do this another way? Can you spare me from the torturous death that is ahead of me and we can find some other solution here? Can we do something else? Now, the irony is look at what he says and who was heard due to the seriousness of his relation to God. Now, that's a very, very strange thing to say, because on the one hand, you want to say he was not heard at all, because what he was asking for is to be spared from the cross. That's very clearly what he was asking for, is don't make me go to the cross. And God did not heed his request. He went straight to the cross, and he suffered the death, exactly that death that God had destined for him. And yet, Paul says, but he was heard due to the seriousness of his relation to God. I think what he's referring to there is the resurrection. In effect, what Jesus was saying is, spare me from death, save me from death, and that's exactly what God did. It was the other other side of the cross, granted, but although it was on the other side of the cross, what's highly significant is he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. God recreated him brought him out of death, out of the grave, and gave him a whole new human existence that he will have for all of eternity. Later in Hebrews, he's going to say he was the trailblazer who's blazed the trail for us because he's gone on ahead of us. He's gone on to his eternal reward, and he has that already. Well, that was the resurrection. And why did God raise him from the dead? Because of, it's hard to know how to translate this, It's due to his fear of God. I rendered it to the seriousness of his relation to God. That is, he took God seriously. The kind of fear that allows the reality of who God is and the seriousness of who God is to inform every choice I make, every decision I make, every word that comes out of my mouth, and so on. I take God seriously 
I don't have a casual attitude toward the existence of God. I have a serious attitude toward the existence of God. I know that in everything that I do, I am answerable to that God. Well, that was Jesus. And due to that mentality and that mindset that Jesus had, God heard his requests and granted it. Not the way that Jesus would have preferred. It wasn't exactly what Jesus was looking for. But nonetheless, God honored who Jesus was by raising him from the dead. Although he was the son, that is, although he was the Messiah, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And having been rendered completely qualified to all who obey him, he became the one responsible for their salvation in the age to come since he had been designated by God as high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. Now, to our ears, he learned obedience. Sounds like here's this man who was inexperienced in obedience, who didn't know how to be obedient, was, didn't know that you had to be obedient, maybe, and God taught him a thing or two. He taught him, you're going to obey me. Don't think that's what he means. Jesus was always obedient. He always understood what obedience was. He always knew how to obey, and he was actually quite skilled at obedience. He didn't need to learn any of those things. I think what Paul means by he learned obedience is it's not that he learned obedience per se. He learned the cost of obedience. He learned what obedience was going to cost him. He learned what obedience meant in his existence and in his life. Something that all of us sooner or later have to learn. We will learn the cost of obedience. It's just endemic to the nature of human existence and human experience is that for whatever reasons, in the purposes of God, God takes us through tribulation. God takes us through suffering. He takes us through sorrow. He takes us through trauma. We live a painful existence. Jesus was not accepted from that. He too, human being that he was, had to learn obedience the same way we learn obedience. That is to say, he had to learn what obedience to God was going to cost the same way we had to learn what obedience to God was going to cost. We learn that in life experience. And as we face into the cost, we either go through it or we take a quick right turn. And Jesus did not take a quick right turn. Jesus marched through in obedience to his father, even though it was going to cost him. He accepted the cost, the sacrifice, paid the cost. So although he was the son... He was not somehow privileged above human existence to be exempted from the cost of obedience that the rest of us have to pay. He too learned obedience from the things that he suffered or in the things that he suffered. And having been rendered completely qualified, and I think those are connected in Paul's mind, it's because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that God highly exalted him above every name that is named. There's a cause and effect relationship. I mean, there's a condition met and that which follows the met condition. Jesus' status as King of Kings and Lord of Lords was ultimately conditional. If you obey me, if you do what I have asked you to do, then I will exalt you above every name. Well, he learned the obedience. He learned to pay the cost. He paid the cost. And therefore, he was qualified. He was made complete. And so what is he talking about? I think he was qualified for his role as my intercessor, as my high priest.
it's critical that he was qualified. Because if he wasn't qualified, then we have no priest, we have no intercessor, and we are out of luck. Having been rendered completely qualified to all who obey him, he became the one responsible for their salvation in the age to come by being the priest who will intercede for them since he had been designated by God as high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. So all who obey him, that's basically synonymous with all who believe in him. Paul at one point talks in Romans, calls it the obedience of faith, that actually believing the truth about Jesus and holding on to that truth about Jesus is, in a manner of speaking, an act of obedience. Truth ought to be believed. And every time I believe that which is true, I'm being obedient to the reality that I am confronted with. And I'm being obedient to the God of that reality and the God of that truth, the God who's proclaiming that truth, if I believe it. So there's no real ultimate distinction between belief and obedience. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Here, he chooses to call it to all who obey him he became the one responsible for their salvation. Obey him in the sense that we respond in the obligatory way, in the requisite way, to the claim that this man is the Messiah, the Son of God, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here he sets the stage now for the argument that he's going to make. And notice that in paragraph 19 there of sentence 2, he quotes Psalm 110, You are a priest to the end of the ages in accord with the order of Melchizedek. In effect, the whole rest of the letter, until you get to his ending stuff, his goodbye stuff, the whole rest of the letter is an exegesis of Psalm 110 and this phrase in particular. You are a priest to the end of the ages in accord with the order of Melchizedek. He's basically going to ask the question, so what does that mean and what does that imply? And he's going to take us through an argument for how should we understand what David, when he wrote Psalm 110, meant when he considered the Messiah, the son of David, and said, God appointed the Messiah, the son of David, to be a high priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek. What was David thinking? And what does that mean? And then he's going to show us how what David was predicting there is exactly who Jesus is, exactly who Jesus was and, and defines exactly what Jesus' role was. Okay, got one minute. Thanks, Jack. Is there any precedence for the king of Israel being thought of as like a priest king in the way that, because David's writing that psalm, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but I, I always thought that he was writing that, that God was saying that to him, that David was a priest forever. No, definitely not. Because we'll, we'll go look at the psalm, and I, I think that's one where the Lord said to my Lord. Okay. So he's looking into the future at the true Messiah that mm-hmm. we know as Jesus. Remember, David was taking us through First or Second Samuel. Can't remember which. There is that time where David, who's the king of Israel, takes on the priest's vestments. Yeah, and then I, Solomon doesn't Solomon offer offerings when the temple is dedicated? But I can't remember if. He does it himself, or if the priest does it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I just thought it'd be interesting if there was kind of like a historical idea that the Messiah, like that David and his line, kind of had a priestly role. What's as well. interesting is in this argument, Paul never makes that point. Hmm. 
because what he seems to be saying is this is, he's going to bend over backwards to say this is in accordance with an entirely different covenant than the Mosaic covenant. And what he's going to say eventually is under the Mosaic covenant, Jesus couldn't have been a priest at all. He was not qualified. So he can only be a priest in accord with the order of Melchizedek, which is an entirely different order of priesthood, which requires a different covenant because the Mosaic covenant would never allow for the order of Melchizedek. One more so. quick question. Is that the Davidic covenant or the new covenant, do you think? Do you think that that covenant is the Davidic covenant or the new covenant mentioned like uh, in the new covenant? Okay. Yeah. What is the uh, Greek for the word learned here? Monthano. And, and does that have any other meaning at all? I was I was thinking of the word demonstrates obedience. Actually, let me double check, make sure I remember that rightly. I don't know the answer. It is that word. I don't know the. I'm not aware of any other significant nuance to it other than just learned. But what would I know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. but I, I can't. I can't think of anything that would that stands out as a distinctive meaning to it other than learn. It's obedience is you either are obedient or you're not. And so when you are obedient, you do learn it. Well, yeah, but you exactly. Demonstrate it. Exactly. That's why I say I don't think he means you learned obedience. I think he means it's a shorthand for you learn the cost of obedience. That's how I'm thinking of it. And you can see how you could learn that. I can understand abstractly that it's going to cost me to follow Jesus, but I don't have a clue what that means until I have to start paying the cost. Can't we all testify to that? We came to Jesus because he was going to make us really very happy. And, oh, yes, but but you'll be persecuted and you'll go through trials and tribulations. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll be persecuted and I'll go through trials and tribulations. And then I start getting persecuted and going through trials and tribulations. And that's when I cry out, really? <laughs> really? Yeah. This is required of me if I'm going to be your disciple? And that's why it's a test. That's why it's a trial. Because there are some of us who bail at that point. If it's going to cost me this much, I'm not interested you can take your stinking kingdom of God and, and throw it away. I'm not interested. Thank you for your hard work and study. You're welcome. I, I've kept you. Sorry. <laughs>